Good morning. It's a great pleasure to be here at Calvary EPC. I've known uh, Pete Scribner for a number of years and uh, Reverend Hal Polk before that for a number of years. And uh, I always, uh, whenever I've been here for a presbytery meeting or the theology conferences, I always remember uh, it's October 2nd or 3rd, 1998, when I preached here and the search committee for North Oaks was right back there watching and listening. So our history goes back. You're the first place I ever preached in Michigan, so I have fond memories here. If you're wondering why I am the guest preacher this morning, it's because your scheduled guest preacher got sick. Um, the doctor put him on bed rest on Wednesday. So Pete called me up and said, do you know anybody that can preach? And I said, well, I think so. Our, my assistant pastor's preaching this Sunday, so I'm available. So that's why I'm here. And so I want to talk to you about one of the best topics in the Bible. There's lots of them. Uh, probably each of us zero in on different aspects of the Bible that, that have meant a lot to us or we have a, a particular memory associated with it or an event, but I just want to talk to you about grace this morning and specifically overflowing grace. And I'm going to approach the scripture passage like this. It's from 1 Timothy 1. I'm going to read the passage, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, and then we're just going to work through it verse by verse. And so... Um, before I do that, I would like to have us bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, would you show us wonderful things from your word? May the gospel come with power. May the word of God be, as you have said it is, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. May it cut deep within our souls to, to accomplish whatever you have planned for people this morning, whether it be encouragement, whether it be warning, whether it be um, just granting perseverance and patience and things we're going to read about today, but open up all of our ears and hearts, the preacher included, to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name I pray, amen. So just as a reminder, um, one thing I thought, it, it's tough following a bunch of the, theologian preachers. I understand you had the Reformation Conference yesterday. And so um, it's tough to follow those guys. I know some of those guys, and they're, they're great Bible teachers and preachers. But the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in about 65 AD. Timothy was... Most likely at the time, one of the pastors or a church leader in, in Ephesus. We just, read, we just read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And he was dealing with a lot of issues in the church. And over and over and over, you'll see in Paul's writings and Peter's writings and Jude's writings, you'll see the apostles dealing with the false teachers in the church. And so it's in that context that Paul is writing. It's one of the many contexts that he writes about the grace of God that overflowed into his life. So here's the word of the Lord, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. 
And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, amen. So let's look at verse 12. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. You know, Paul wasn't one of those guys that just gave out random, insignificant thanks. He wasn't just, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. He wasn't like that. And specifically in Scripture, when we see the writer, whether it's Old Testament or New, we see thanksgivings are directed and he directs them to where they are due. He knew where and from whom the blessings came, and he was not shy about letting people know all the way through Paul's writings. He exhibits for us and displays what a thankful Christian is like. And you can see that sprinkled all through his writings, his joy, his perseverance, his gratefulness, his dependence. He is so quick to thank him. Christ Jesus, our Lord, he writes. Not his Lord. He, he is very rarely singular or possessive of the grace that has overflowed to him. And so he recognizes that along with the body of Christ, the, the beautiful body of Christ that, that we heard sang about this morning, that the overflowing grace and mercy and love of God has overflowed into our lives. And Paul is thankful. Jesus is no exclusive, private, only personal Savior. He thanks him who has given him strength. And this is strength both to come to Christ, as we remember Paul's conversion story. He he had no strength. He thanks him who has judged him faithful. Faithful because he relied on that very strength of God which was provided for him and given to him. And he thanks God because he appointed him to his service. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, wrote 13 books of the New Testament that are preserved for us even to this day. Is anyone here overwhelmed or distressed by what they perceive God is calling them to do? 
For some of us, it can be just the daily routines of life. They get rather overwhelming at times, don't they? Just getting up and going to work and caring for the family and working with children or parents, brothers and sisters, co-workers. I know of one friend right now who dreads going into work every single day because of the relationship between him and his boss. Paul thanks Jesus Christ who has given him strength and judged him faithful and appointed him to service. If Christ has appointed you to his service, which he has, then he has also given you the strength to do it. By his overflowing grace, he has judged you faithful in advance. It's great news. There's scriptures that remind us of this. Philippians 2.13, Paul writes, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 4.13, Paul writes, and there's a context to it we don't have a chance to go into this morning, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So as we start this passage on overflowing grace, be reminded that Jesus Christ provides the strength for whatever he has called us to do, whether it's coming to him in salvation, whether it's walking to him with him in sanctification, and even persevering to the very end, to the day he either calls us home or he comes back. It's good news. Paul then begins to share a little bit of his personal testimony in verse 13. After those statements in verse 12, he goes, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. See, Paul received this saving, sanctifying strength from Christ. He received this favorable judgment from the Lord. He received this call to service in spite of the fact that he had failed God completely and miserably in his life as a Pharisee. An extremely religious man, we would have recognized him if we had lived there as the one to receive the honor and the respect and we were to model our lives after them and you know, so much of what we would see in their lives, their devotion to God. But Paul has a different view of himself, of what he was like before he came to Christ. He called himself a blasphemer. And you could sum this up by saying that Paul had regularly and consistently broken the greatest commandment in the Bible. And that was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. And what's interesting is Paul had broken that commandment at the very time he thought he was fulfilling it completely. He thought he was loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength in Jerusalem, being a Pharisee, being a teacher of the law, as he was on his way to Damascus to persecute and rip Christians out of their homes and throw them in prison. And yet, when the strength of God came and brought salvation to the apostle, he recognized 
his life as what it was, as one of blasphemy. He also recognized that he had broken the second commandment, which was like the first. He, he called himself a persecutor. He did not see that the body of Christ was beautiful. He saw them as enemies of, of the covenant of God, enemy of the temple, enemy of Jerusalem, and of the people of Israel. So he had also, and he understood this by the grace of God, that he had failed to love his neighbor as himself. And we know, and I know you've heard this here for years through the, the good teaching that's come from this pulpit, that the great commandment to love God and to love neighbor sums up all of the Ten Commandments. And so Paul recognized that he was an insolent opponent to the very grace of God, the very kingdom of God. He was a violent aggressor against the church. And Paul was in this very condition, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, as he was on the road to Damascus to carry out his persecution. And the grace of God apprehended him on that road. And every time I consider Paul's actions and his experience on the Damascus road, I'm reminded that he was not seeking God. We think that people come to God when they seek God. You know, Paul wasn't seeking God. He was, he was seeking a wrong understanding of God, maybe. He wasn't trying out Christianity to see if it met some needs. He wasn't doing that. He was on a mission to destroy it with every ounce of his being, with every fiber of his strength, to destroy this upstart church, which was trying to tear down the pillars of Judaism. And what did God do? God interrupted his life with overflowing grace, as he has for so many in this room. He says in verse 13, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I've looked back at my life and I've, I've tried to examine parts of it. I'm going, I don't know whether I acted so ignorantly back before, before conversion. I trust that I have. I trust that the things that I did, which were equal to Paul's experience in many ways, trust that I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and then look back and appreciate and thankful for the mercy of God. See, Paul fell right into that widespread category that so many of us know so well of the folks that Jesus prayed for on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. You know, that gives me great encouragement when I pray for loved ones, family members, friends that do not follow Christ right now and, and often don't show any desire to do that. To grasp onto that prayer of Jesus is a true and trustworthy saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Well, verse 14, Paul goes on. And he says, 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And what I call in this verse, in verse 13 and 14, is an intersection with mercy, grace, faith, and love. It's where all these wonderful things that describe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it, it's almost like an intersection, a, a collision right there in the middle of the four-way intersection. But it's beautiful. And we begin to see all these things unfold as Paul is recounting them in his life and wanting Timothy and also the listeners, the members of the Ephesian church to grasp these things. I'd been to seminary, I took Greek, but I am not a Greek scholar and I'm glad God is merciful to me. But one thing I learned about the Greek language, and it's very interesting here, there's, there's, a, there's a, a little thing to remember if you're ever able to look at it, is that in, in English, when we want to emphasize a word, we put it in bold print, we colorize it, uh, we underline it, we put it in italics. We, you know, that's the way we emphasize a word in a sentence. Well, in Greek, they just move the word to the front of the sentence. And so when you read the sentence, the very first word in the sentence is so often the main point of the sentence that the writer wants you to understand. Guess what the first word in the Greek New Testament of verse 14 is? Overflowed. So when, when Timothy would read this, the very first word he would read in this verse would be overflowed. So think about that word for a moment. To abound over and beyond. To be present in great abundance. To abound exceedingly above its usual measure. Those were the definitions that I looked up. So the very first word in that sentence, when it's talking about grace, is overflowed. Whenever a river overflows, its banks means that it cannot be contained any longer. It spreads its influence out beyond its normal boundaries. Our family had the great, I, I, it's just distinct. I don't know anybody that's ever, that's ever had this experience before, but our family owned a waterfall in North Georgia. My dad bought a little three or four acre plot up in North Georgia, and it had a waterfall on it. And so we would go up there and camp at the bottom of this waterfall, and this waterfall, 100, 150 feet would just come down, and it was just overflowing. The water would come down. So we'd, we, I'd camp up there with my friends during college, and we'd be nasty and gritty and campfire smoke in our clothes, and we would just love to get up in the morning and get in that cold waterfall and just let it overflow on us and cleanse us and refresh us and reinvigorate us. Does that describe the overflowing grace in your life? Has it been an invigorating grace, a renewing grace, a regenerating grace, to use one of our theological terms? And is this grace continuing to overflow as you 
see yourself growing in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus? Well, the good news is these describe us as Christians. And we often forget. We forget these things, that these are the promises and the realities that we walk in every day. No matter how tough the day is, no matter what we're facing, no matter how much we're struggling with our own call or our assignments or duties or tasks, that God's grace is overflowing on his church on a continual, everyday basis. Verse 15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, I could preach a sermon on that verse alone. There's so much there. So I'm going to give you a little mini four-point sermon from that verse. And maybe someone needs to hear, hear these and be reminded of this. Number one, the claims of the gospel are true and trustworthy. The claims of the gospel are true and trustworthy. Do you ever find yourself kind of subtly believing that they're not when you're dealing with a friend or a loved one who hasn't believed yet and you're wondering whether it's ever going to come with power, whether it's ever going to really work or... Do you ever find yourself in the back of your mind thinking, have I just followed some kind of stories, myths? The claims of the gospel are true and trustworthy. We can have confidence in the reliability of the message that it is overflowing grace on our lives. Now, another thing in this passage in verse 15 is the, the offer of the gospel is to be worldwide because Jesus Christ came into the world. He didn't come just to Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. He came to the ends of the world. He came, he came so that the gospel might come to Flint, Michigan and every place in between. And the core of the gospel there's lots of items at the core. The kingdom of God, the King Jesus, the cross and the resurrection. But I know that I need to be reminded that at least the core of the gospel as it applies through our lives and our actions is that Jesus is saving sinners. Sometimes as a Presbyterian, I was just looking at all those books on that table out there. I was so envious. I took pictures of about eight of those books. <laughs> like, well, those are book, good books that I want to read and recommend to people. Sometimes it wouldn't happen here. In our quest for godliness, we can read, we can research, we can, we can rejoice in all these things, and yet we keep it all to ourselves. I know, number one, I've been so guilty of that. Core of the gospel is Jesus saving sinners. And he's not back yet, so he's not done doing that. And then one more thing from this verse 15, when he says, I am the foremost, and he's referring to, he's the foremost of sinners, and in other passages he says, because he persecuted the church, or is why he comes up with that. Is that the application of the gospel needs to be personal. 
it is corporate. It, it concerns the body of Christ and everybody that comes into the kingdom of God. But it also, it has to come to each particular person personally. It's not just something that you're born into because your family is Christian. There is a new birth that must happen to every single person who's going to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Paul felt this when he got convicted by the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. That's one of the reasons he writes his testimonies. This is what I was. And now look at what he's done. When God's overflowing grace came to Paul, he then viewed himself as the worst of sinners, the least of all the apostles, and the least of all the saints. When he became convicted of his sins by the Holy Spirit, he no longer compared himself to others in a way which would boost his own self-esteem or minimalize his sins, which even we as Christians are tempted to do that sometimes. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy down the street. He was transformed from the Pharisee in Luke 18. And Pastor Pete told me you just went through Luke. Paul had been transformed from the Pharisee who went into the temple and worshipped and prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. And Paul shared in the personal experience of the grace of God overflowing onto his life and he now had solidarity with the tax collector, the sinner. And he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. Remember, he couldn't even see. Was it three days? He couldn't even see because he was blinded by the light of Jesus Christ on that road. So he certainly was not lifting his eyes up to God. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Has everybody shared that experience today? If not, you know who to talk to. You know someone in the church. It would make their day if you came to them and said, would you pray with me? Would you encourage me? I'm struggling with these things. There was a story about a religious man from 1520, I found. His name was Thomas Bilney. Eventually, he was martyred and persecuted and burned at the stake for his Christian faith. But in 1520, he was elected a, a fellow of Trinity Hall in Cambridge. I mean, that's a religious position, right? And he was called Little Billney because he was a short little guy. And he was searching for peace and couldn't find it. And I don't remember where I found this. I may have found it in the Fox Book of Martyrs or another book. I can't remember. But here's what he says as he was reading some of this passage from 1 Timothy. At the first reading, and I remember well, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, O most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul, in 1 Timothy 1, 
It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world into the world to save sinners of who I am chief and principal. This one sentence, according to Bilney's testimony, through God's instruction and the provision of God's strength and his overflowing grace, Bilney goes on and says, I did not perceive, but it so exhilarated my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and almost in despair, and even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. I love reading the conversion stories of the saints of old. They help me to think about what it should be like. He said, after this, the scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than the honey or the honeycomb. Philip Bilney's most notable convert was a man named Hugh Latimer, more familiar figure in the English Reformation. And Latimer was greatly impressed with the courage in which he saw Thomas Bilney, little Bilney, go to the stake and be burned alive for his evangelical faith. And Latimer referred to this man in his sermons as Saint Bilney. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.16 But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's conversion is many things to us as we study it in the book of Acts and see him recounting it a number of times. But one thing it certainly is, is an illustration of God's perfect patience to those who deserve only his wrath so that they might believe and receive eternal life. We don't always view God as a patient God. It's easy to view him as sovereign, merciful, just, holy, the things we tend to focus on more primarily in the Reformed tradition. But consider the patience of God in the history of humanity. Wasn't God patient with Adam and Eve after the fall? Boy, how patient he was. Clothed them with skins. And you, you almost have to assume there was other things. I like, I, I can't say for sure, but I like to think that those skins came from the animals that God showed them how to sacrifice. To bring a pleasing sacrifice to God, which they passed on to their son, Abel, who was martyred for. How about God's patience with Abraham? After he had forgotten the promise and the word of God, which was true and trustworthy, and involved himself in the whole Hagar-Ishmael debacle. God was patient. How about his patient with Moses? You know, we, we exalt Moses in our view, and maybe rightly so to some extent, but look at all the times God showed patience to Moses. Over 40 years in the wilderness. 
God was so patient with the ancient Israelites, the people of God, the covenant people of God. Over and over, he sent judges, he sent prophets, he sent godly kings to rescue them. God was patient with the New Testament church as well. Just read about the problems and issues that were going on in the church. Read 1 Corinthians. Read about all the false teachers that the church is battling with, which, which is one of the reasons that, that sparks so many of the New Testament letters. Look at the seven churches of Revelation and how most of the things we remember about those seven churches and how difficult a time they were having. And Paul, and, and God is just so patient. I'm convinced that we as church folks are very prone to forgetting about or even missing altogether this perfect patience that God shows impatient sinners like you and me. And God's perfect patience is one of the primary ingredients of this overflowing grace that pours onto us continually. It's so easy to miss the grace that overflows because we get distracted, we get busy, we get bogged down, we get our priorities out of order. It's so easy for that to happen. It happens all the time. Folks who deserve only God's punishment fail to recognize receive and even extend God's goodness that is available in record quantities. I'm going to close with an illustration. A number of years ago, we were on vacation and I had taken up a new hobby. My wife remember this. I suddenly just had this fascination with birds. I never was a bird expert, but you know, we, we got the bird feeders, four of them out on the back porch. I got the, the bird book. I got my binoculars. I even got a bird app on my phone where I could look them up. And, and, and so one time we were on vacation, and we were in West Virginia, where West Virginia, Washington, and Maryland all came together. And we, we took a little tubing trip down the Shenandoah River. And it was just, I mean, this was out in the sticks. I mean, you're hearing banjo music out there. So I'm floating down the river, and I've just got this brand new passion for bird watching. And there are these birds flying everywhere, just swooping down, and 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 they have these little pointed wings. And 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 I suspected what they were. I suspected that they were some type of swallow. So I got back to where the the tubing ended, and I went back to the car, and I got my bird book. And I'm looking in there, and I'm going, you know, I think these are bank swallows. And so I looked up in the book, small, slender songbirds which nest in colonies and streamside banks across much of North America. They're white underneath, brown on top, have a small bill, long wings. They love to eat insects. I'm going, I think I've got them. I mean, that, that, was, the, that was the passion I had for bird watching. And those of you that have, have any hobby that gets you going, for you know, you, you understand what I'm talking about. But I needed some verification. I, I needed... I needed someone to confirm that because I was a novice. So there's this good old boy that's working the rafts, working the bus. I think he's the one that drove the bus, dropped us off at the drop point on the Shenandoah River. And he's just a good old boy from West Virginia. So I walk up to him. <laughs> I'll never forget this. 
And I said, sir, what, what kind of birds are those that I saw on the river? And I'm just excited, waiting for confirmation, thinking all these descriptions of these birds. And I'll never forget his answer, and I'll never forget his accent. He goes, them's just old birds eating bugs. And I, and I was just going, how can he say that? These are bank swallows. They're white underneath, brown on top, pointed wings. They live in colonies along the banks. And, they're, and I was so excited about these birds. But you know, it wasn't that he hated birds. I think he was acting ignorantly in unbelief about the beauty of birds. And I, I, I learned a life lesson as I contemplated that. He was working, grinding out a living in rural West Virginia where life was tough, money was scarce, didn't grow on trees, and the birds didn't bring it to you for sure. It was a Monday dog day afternoon. It was hot. And, you know, he frankly didn't care about the birds. I don't think he'd ever thought about them. He was just trying to make it through another week and get his bills paid. You know, people miss the overflowing grace of God in the same way. It's not that they have all have made this intentional rejection. And some have, and that's a frightful thing. But many are just acting ignorantly in unbelief. They're caught up in the demands of life and often miss the joy of overflowing grace. Let me read one last passage and leave us with a view of God's perfect patience, which is certainly a part of overflowing grace. It's from 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 14. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. That's the results of overflowing grace. May God's grace overflow on all of us today. Now there's one more verse in the passage, but instead of preaching it, I'm going to read it and then we're going to sing it. And so whoever the musicians are, there we go.